You're tuned into Building a Greener Idaho, your weekly community affairs program here on Radio Boise, having conversations at the intersection of people, planet, and profit. Today, we are continuing with our August theme of growth and congestion and change and what it means for the Valley. Previous shows, we've talked about transportation and, and growth and congestion in terms of our traffic planning. We also talked about culture last, uh, most recently with Karen Bubb of the City of Boise Arts and History Department talking about what the City of Boise is doing to try and weave culture into everything uh, that the city undertakes. This week, we are continuing in that same vein of cultural identity, and we're talking about the cultural identity of Boise and the Treasure Valley, growth here in the Valley, and what we might learn from other cities out there. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Dr. Amanda Ashley from Boise State University, who is the Program Director for Urban Studies and Community Development. And remotely from afar, we are joined from Austin, Texas, by a colleague of ours, Alicia Pina, who is a planner with the City of Austin, the Public Works Department. Hi, Alicia. Hi there. All right. Ladies, thank you both for joining me today. Um, to start off the conversation, how important is the notion of art and culture to community? I think that arts and culture is moving from being primarily an amenity or something that's nice to have to something that's actually essential for economic and community development. And I can speak a little bit to what you see from the national picture. And so it's this idea of unpacking or breaking down what arts and culture actually means, uh, which is something I think the city of Boise has done a really remarkable job with and that Karen Bubb talked about last week uh, with uh, in your episode with her. And it's this idea that arts and culture is important um, in a number of different ways because it supports tourism, because it can help stabilize struggling neighborhoods, uh, because it gives us creative workers that really help tap into our growing economy and also because it helps us really make interesting unique places so that we don't just look cookie cutter across across our communities. Alicia out there in Austin what are your perspectives on culture? Um, So Austin is a city that's going through a lot of change. Uh, People like to wax poetic about the old Austin you know the free spirit progressive creative city type and with a lot of this change a lot of which is in part from the tech industry you see this sort of new I guess, mature identity that is coming out of that. Um, and it's trying to hold on to some semblance of what it used to be. With this growth, you also see a lot of, you know, the cost of living is going up and a lot of our creative groups are priced out of Austin. Uh, so whereas this is the live music capital of the nation, you know, there's a lot of fear that we're going to lose that status because musicians are moving, you know, 30 miles outside of Austin mm-hmm. so that they can actually record in their homes. Um, you also see things like South by Southwest. You know, we, we talk about arts and culture as a community and economic development tool. You know, South by Southwest started in the 1980s, and originally it was a way to sort of bring forward these local acts and create a place where residents could sort of view them in their showcasing period. And now South by Southwest is a time where, you know, the, the city is flooded with tourists, which is great for, you know, the... Um, the economy, but, you know, at what cost? A lot of residents actually leave during South by Southwest and are Airbnb their places out to tourists. And so South by Southwest isn't really as much of a 
an opportunity for locals as it is for tourists to come in and kind of appreciate this commodification of the culture you see in the area. I think that's really interesting, uh, what you're saying, Alicia, and this idea of this theme that you've been working on since August, this idea of growth, congestion, and change, and the way that we want to support arts and culture without actually using it. So the very people that are helping us build this identity don't get lost in that mix or don't get pushed out on whatever that whatever that might look like. Um, and I've always thought like Austin's a really unique place for that because we are constantly experiencing change in our urban like our urban landscape, our urban environment, and so on. And I'm always interested about how buildings, for example, get repurposed or used and how they've actually becoming arts and cultural uses. And then Austin has like some wonderful examples of old um, airplane hangars and military uh, facilities that have been transformed into new sites for film and television production uh, and so on. And there's been like a lot of public and public-private investment that's gone in to try to make these, I would say, more cutting edge ways of thinking about how we integrate arts and culture into our communities in older, um, more historic spaces. Yeah. And, and I can't help but reflect on um, some of the, the recent conversations we've had talking about the city of Boise's cultural master plan, where uh, a big uh, significant component of that cultural master plan is to support the local artisans and to give them a venue, uh, a platform upon which to develop themselves as career professional artists and yet I, I hear echoes of that in Alicia's comment that South by Southwest started organically and was a, a local community-based initiative and now has become nationally or internationally known and suddenly the culture uh, or something cultural that started as a seed in Austin has, has grown into something so much larger and then how do we how do we adapt to that change and what do we as a community think about that um, it's hard not to it, it's hard to keep a, a focus, a laser focus on key issues when it, you could you could go in so many directions and talk about the affordability of a city and how the culture of a city improves, um, the competition to be there also increases, and then that that can result in people feeling pinched or pushed uh, around. And I wonder, Alicia, are there any thoughts about what's currently going on in Austin? or what's been in the works perhaps in, in recent years about how to best support uh, the local populace as the city continues to experience significant change? Sure. Um, yeah, I think like Boise, they've been trying to do more programs for you know, city artists and residents type things. Um, you know, I, I brought up South by Southwest example because that's one that, you know, a lot of people across the nation are familiar with, but I think the city's doing a lot to try to support you know, local artists throughout the year. Um, you know, South by Southwest is one event, but we have a lot of things that are happening on any given day. You know, local performances, you know, movies being made. Um, we have a very robust art in public place program that's actually housed in the Economic Development Department of the city. Um, Boise has a similar thing. Um, here, it's 2% of all of our capital projects funding goes into this pool and the idea is to really have these cool artistic elements added into our otherwise boring capital projects. And, you know, for a lot of that, they do try to hire local talent so that we can really have art that is made by residents themselves. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think we as a city are trying to do a lot of studies and we create these reports on ways to address the challenges. And no one has really quite figured out the best the best solution you know right now we're really just trying to 
preserve more than, you know, create new things. Like we have the Red River Cultural District and, you know, with a lot of that, we're trying to make sure that our music venues are staying in place and they're not getting redeveloped into luxury apartments because if the music venues go, all of a sudden you don't have a place for the artists to actually perform. Right. You know, and the housing is something that's even further back on the back burner. You know, that's even more of a <laughs> struggle in terms of preservation and trying to get both you know, subsidized and market rate affordable housing for these creative types. Um, you know, I, I want to segue to something that Amanda said previously, which is we want to enjoy culture without supporting culture. Or I may be misremembering the words, but I think that was the sentiment. Um, Amanda, can you expand upon that notion and, and whether there's something there that we need to be thinking about in terms of, of supporting mm-hmm. culture and strengthening our community? I'd be happy to. I think it's this idea that we use artists and creative workers and arts infrastructure as a way to attract a particular segment, right? The creative society, really well-educated workers, uh, because that's what we're really interested in attracting and about how we build economic development and so on. Um, but at the same time, not addressing the fact that those kinds of strategies might actually hurt those local artists themselves. And so making sure that we are creating a robust set of strategies that benefit everybody mm-hmm. um, rather than just using people and then tossing them aside. And so I think a lot about that. And and to me, this is like a broader like civic conversation, which is why I'm just so glad that we're talking about this and, and that we've, we've been invited here about how art becomes more than just an object. It becomes a language with which we have civic conversations about our society and the way that we think about how to problem solve places. So um, Alicia, do you mind if I give a couple examples in Austin that I think are quite spectacular? Because they deal exactly please, with please, Remington, please. what Remington's interested in is that Austin has embraced growth with almost everything it possibly could. And so, and because of that, it's led to some more kind of suburban development in its downtown core. And so people can get in and out of the city as quickly as it possibly could. And so they've lost a lot of public space um, in terms of that kind of infrastructure development, that infrastructure building. And so there's been this wonderful incentive that's been put in place to use arts and culture to recapture alleys as a way of creating more vibrant public spaces. And typically, alleys have always been places that we've ignored or try to walk around. I can't say that's necessarily the case in Boise, um, but that's been this huge momentum, this huge push that as we're undergoing change, like to rethink what we think of as public space, as community gathering spaces. Um, And I would say the same for the Basque Block and many other examples that we have here in Boise. And so arts and culture becomes a language, a really powerful, um, I would say, democratic way of talking about the issues that we're facing as we're growing rapidly. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Building a Greener Idaho. And this week, my guests are Alicia Pina, a planner with the city of Austin, and Dr. Amanda Ashley, who is a professor of urban studies at Boise State University. We're talking about arts and culture and the intersection where artisans and uh, growth in the city uh, explore opportunities. And one of the things that Alicia just mentioned, um, and Amanda, you touched on it as well, is as cities grow, the... Uh, inclination to urbanize or suburbanize uh, is real and and that can lead to growth on the periphery and not necessarily in the core um, with the result that people do feel that they need to, to drive to qualify or maybe they have to live further out in order to enjoy that same quality of living whereas previously they they had opportunities to be downtown are there any silver bullets are there any best management practices or strategies that um, civic leaders 
need to keep in the forefront of their mind when it comes to uh, affordable housing or market raised housing or just housing generally? Do, do we build enough housing stock to accommodate the people that are coming and the people that are already here? Huh, that's a <laughs> that is a tricky question, and I, I don't think in Austin we have that that silver bullet. I think one of the the critical things is working to fight NIMBY. You know, that's the whole notion of not in my backyard. You know, that we are in fact a community, even though you know you see a lot of this growth in your city, and you look at your neighbor and you say, hey, like you're not you're not an Austin resident. You're you're not a Texan. You came from California. A lot of this growth is very frightening for community members. They see that their prices are going up because all of these people are moving in. They see that the artists are leaving. And then meanwhile, they look at these redevelopment projects in infill areas or even new suburbs, and they see that all of these new areas that are oftentimes for newer residents to the community are getting all of the the sidewalks and the, the bike lanes and stuff like that. And I think there's a real challenge with optics of who is getting what and who's paying for what. Um, I think it oftentimes looks to the standard city residents that all of these new people are getting all of the assets without having to pay into the system when, in fact, a lot of these developers are putting it in. Meanwhile, the city programs are trying to, you know, put in assets in place for those established communities where a lot of our creative people live. Mm-hmm. I think what's really interesting for me, like looking at like, the 10,000-foot view, is that since you know, over the past seven years or so, the South has grown the fastest, but the West is right behind it in terms of we've grown over 7.3%. And so there is this amazing energy that's coming with all of these people are moving and also the challenges of growing at that kind of immense pace. Uh, and the reality is that 35% of people that are in the United States are housing poor, which means they spend more than 30% of their income on their housing costs. In fact, 25% um, is actually even severely burdened, meaning they spend more than 50%. And so it becomes this question about affordability. And the wonderful thing, um, and I guess maybe this is the silver lining of looking, is there's not just one way to deal with affordable housing, right? There's all these different types of tools and strategies from housing trust funds to limiting uh, minimum lot sizes to um, cultural um, specific for arts and culture workers in terms of providing housing for that planning for workforce development, the list goes on and on um, in terms of the tools and the strategies that you could actually use to deal with those issues. For me, the bigger issue um, isn't just providing affordable housing. It's also making sure, and I think Alicia also mentioned this too, that it's connected to transit, that's connected to good public services, education, parks, and so on, and so that we're not isolating these people and making sure that um, all areas uh, provide a really good place for people to live, that they don't just have to come downtown for that. Fantastic. You're listening to Building a Greener Idaho here on Radio Boise. Our conversation today is about culture and community and change. And we've been talking about some of the the similarities and the distinctions between Boise and Austin, Texas. We're going to take a quick break to play some messages. Uh, Stick with us. We'll be back in just a brief moment. Welcome back to Building a Greener Idaho. My guests are Dr. Amanda Ashley from Boise State University and Alicia Pina, a planner with the city of Austin. We're talking about culture and change. Um, Previously, before the break, we were talking about strategies to address uh, affordable housing and housing options and and change in the community when uh, cultural landmarks are undergoing change and development is occurring. but I want to try and, and turn that notion on its head or, or to posit the opposite question now, which is 
does community and culture require a physical location and history? Uh, if we took the creative class or, or the old Austin, as Alicia mentioned, who were seminal in getting South by West, Southwest started and we transplanted them, copy and pasted them somewhere else to a new community, could we get an authentic culture or do we have to be rooted in place? Um, what about this notion that people are coming and they're contributing to or changing the culture? I think history is incredibly uh, important. In fact, I taught a uh, Investigate Boise class this summer on that very idea about how history influences who we are as a community, who we are as people. And um, and it was co-taught with the new uh, professor of practice, Dr. Jen Stevens, that we have at the School of Public Service, and which is actually in partnership with the Department of History. So I'm actually delighted to hear to hear this to hear this question. And for me, history is part of our DNA. Like I know that I want to be able to walk through the new Esther Simplot Park and know what was there before and know how a space that now seems perfect as a park once seemed perfect as an airport or an industrial site. For me, the history is our DNA or our evolution about how our city is changing and how those needs are changing. And so it's not that I think new people are bad. In fact, new people are good. That's actually, you know, what all the economic development research research suggests. Um, but I do think it is important that everyone has a sense of knowledge about um, who our community is and how it's shifting and how it's changing. I, I think the way that you see art and culture a lot in in Austin, if you see a lot of these sort of pop up interactions, uh, you can be walking down the street and see someone playing music or doing a little drama. And it's unclear whether or not they're homeless or you know, upper class at times. Um, so I think this sort of talks to how art and culture doesn't have to be necessarily embedded in place and that it is kind of part of the spirit of a place. However, I think it is really sad when you walk through an area and have no idea of what was there previously. I, I um, in Austin right now, we are redeveloping um, an area called the Seaholm District, uh, the former location of the Seaholm Power Plant, Green Water Treatment Plant, Energy Control Center, you know, a big area that had a lot of city buildings on site for utilities. And, and right now it's becoming a new vibrant district full of luxury apartments. A new central library is going to be put in place there. And, you know, one of the big challenges is, you know, as we're redeveloping this district, how do we maintain that sense of really tell the story? Um, I think they've been trying to do a lot of, you know, community threats in terms of how we redesign these buildings through these public-private partnerships that are in place and how we make sure that the history reflects the past uses and also make sure that even once the places have been redeveloped, there is some sort of civic space element to it. You know, so we have the Soul Creek Trail that goes through the and that's something that's accessible to all, whether or not you live in the apartments or not. And there's art throughout the district, the Art and Places program. And a lot of this is stuff that is really sort of tied back to the you know previous uses in this area and i think it's really great the different teams that have come together whether it's you know part or public works um the office of sustainability really trying to come together and create a story of of this place in the wake of you know a lot of change i think that's wonderful to hear because arts and culture shouldn't just come out of a singular office that what it's trying to convey and what it's trying to symbolize is so much more, whether it's sustainability and planning and development and parks and, and so on. And what I love about Alicia's story is that, in part, it's the reason why we need public space, so we can have these places where people can just go and perform as they would like. 
um, that we can have the kind of temporary kind of arts and culture activity that doesn't come with just like a permanent object that actually reshapes that place every single time. And for me, that's why it's not placelessness, that it is place that allows for that kind of activity to happen. Mm -hmm. And so we need um, really thoughtful, innovative real estate developers that just don't want to privatize their particular projects for their residents that really want to have a nice integration or seamlessness into what urban life and urban drama and urban theater is like supposed to be about why people love that kind of that kind of environment. Do we need to be thinking about this as a community, as a city, and making plans to support art, or is it enough that this might organically happen on its own? I do think we need to support it. I, you know, the city of Austin, like a large part of our economy and a large reason why a bunch of the tech companies came in the first place is because it has this quality of life and this vibrant culture that is really a recruiting tool for bringing in the young people that are coming out of their, you know, tech programs and their universities. If you have a dull city, tech companies aren't really going to be able to attract the talents they need to actually produce what they're working on. Uh, with with a culturally deficient city, you have a real HR problem, really, for these for these companies in the area. Hmm. Boise is doing something really interesting. And again, you had Karen Bubb in here last week, but it can't, it just, it should be even underscored even more that the city of Boise um, is truly innovative in this cultural plan that they're doing. You know, I've looked nationally at cultural plans across the U.S. and lots of different cities, all different uh, sizes all different locations and usually they all are um, really incredibly cookie cutter and they're all done by a handful of consultants and the right. fact that like the city of Boise's was done out of their office with people that have local and regional and intermountain west knowledge I think makes it incredibly powerful and the fact that it really does try to not just isolate arts and culture and history but to integrate it with planning and sustainability and development and public space and so on I think is um, something that you know Terry Shoresman is the director and Karen Bubb is this new cultural planner um, you know should really be acknowledged for and the fact that the city council and the mayor gave um, the kind of resources and support to make that happen and you know just like any planner knows like the goal now is to make sure that that's wonderful that that's what that support looks like right to have this kind of planning document that guides our vision but at the end of the day what matters is so what do you do with that Right. right. And so you don't want these plans that just sit on the shelf and gather dust, but really taking that kind of energy and that knowledge and um, and those kinds of networks that get developed and actually doing something with it that isn't just top down planning, but actually is moved by our neighborhoods and moved by our community partners is just so, so important. Well, and it seems to me that so often we can draw a distinction between the type of plan that might more appropriately be categorized as a catalog uh, and, and a, a listing of extensive items that are in place or activities that have occurred versus the plan that includes a lot of action and strategic initiatives with goals and metrics and things that we can measure and, and track our performance. If we're talking about culture, if we're talking about the growth that Austin, for example, has experienced and that Boise can expect to experience, what have we not already touched on? What do we need to be thinking about in terms of setting some goals and some metrics to measure how successful we are at, at maintaining culture or supporting culture or allowing for change and a diversity, a diversification of culture as a city grows? So I'm coming at this more from the capital project side and, and, and less from the cultural side, but it seems like we get a little bit of a mismatch from our initial plans to the actual implementation. We set these broad goals and these benchmarks and these plans, and then by the time that you have 
actual capital projects coming forward, you know, by engineers and outside consultants, you're kind of deviating a fair amount from the original intent that was laid out in the plan itself. You need to have a little bit more involvement from engineers in the planning process and vice versa. Planners need to be more involved in actually implemented on the ground. And so we kind of need to wear multiple hats and sort of think beyond just, you know, I do my role and they do theirs, but all of a sudden you have planners that are becoming in part project coordinators and working on things, you know, that might not sound as, you know, sexy to them as usual, but talking about, okay, you know, where should we locate this so that it doesn't get as damaged by the sun, you know, if we're talking about like a public art installation. You know, we have to really sort of scale how we think at the high level and then also come down to getting in the weeds and looking at, you know, okay, so how can we make sure that our plans set clear benchmarks that, you know, future, you know, groups that sort of come in and pick up these projects can actually follow and start tracking. I come at it from a, a different perspective, um, just at the, at the national picture and looking at where funding is and looking at where arts economic development um, advocates and practitioners or policymakers, they're pushing quantitative measures like nobody's business. Um, and there's so many impact analyses that, that go out there and trying to judge the value of arts culture. I worry that the qualitative stuff is what's getting lost um, because we've gone from being able to compare cities across a number of different indicators so we can say we're better than this city or we stack up against this city and then we actually lose uh, what's the real uniqueness of the arts and culture in our environments. And I, in fact, uh, one of the big federal or one of the big national granting bodies uh, used to make that had all sorts of monies that cities would compete for left and right used to have a set of placemaking indicators that they required all of their grantees to find. Uh, and because of the push act and because of the way that they saw that they weren't working, they went back to the communities and said, no, you pick the indicators that actually work for you in terms of how you evaluate place. And so I would like to see more of a balance of that, making sure that we have those economic tools so that it's a entryway for having those conversations, but not losing out about what makes us unique, authentic, or weird. Like yeah. That. You know, while I work in the city, a lot of us think in terms of quantitative measures. That's not how people experience the city. You know, they experience the city qualitatively. You know, I can tell you that about two years ago when I moved to Austin, I could walk down Rainy Street, which at the time was mm-hmm. sort of this becoming, you know, growing into itself, like street of, of bars that had a very cool little vibe to it all to set up in different single family homes. And you could walk down it and it felt really cool. You could avoid the craziness of you know, dirty Sixth Street, um, you know, and in two years, you know, I've noticed a huge change in terms of, you know, right now on a Friday night, I won't go there because the, the streets are too packed. And, and that's not something that's as quantitative in nature. That's a qualitative thing. People experience congestion, not by numbers, but by how long, how much longer it takes them to get to and from work. And, and I can't really speak much to indicators for, you know, arts and culture, but but again, context is everything. You need to have your local adaptation and really talk with community members about what it is that's important to them and what are the sort of indicators of success or failure for them. But what I really like about what Alicia's saying is that what you really want to measure are outcomes. You don't want to measure, let's have this policy, right? Because that's not really an outcome. You want to know that that policy impacts something, that that policy changes something uh, in the direction that you want to go. And I think you know, that's why the capital side, the implementation side um, is so important, because without that, all we are is a plan. We mm-hmm. are coming to the end of our show, and I want to thank Dr. Ashley and Ms. Pena for joining us here on Building a Green Idaho. Uh, ladies, thank you very much for sharing your views with our listening audience. 
Thank you, Remington. This has just been wonderful. Thank you for having me. And like your show really does have the civic conversation that we need to have. So I'm really glad that Radio Boise supports it. Well, we're glad to have your voice contributing to the conversation here. Uh, if you'd like to revisit this conversation, you can do so by visiting us at buildingagreeneridaho.org, or you can catch our rebroadcast on SoundCloud. And I look forward to having this conversation again, perhaps with the two of you at a future date. Thank you. Sounds good. <laughs>